Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Welcome back to Awareness to Action. Today we're joined by Laura Cross. Laura is a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified EFT therapist and supervisor, and owner of a group private practice, Individual and Relationship Therapy Center in Denver, Colorado. Laura is also an AAMFT-approved supervisor and practicum supervisor for the University of Colorado Denver Couple and Family Therapy Program. The first 22 years of Laura's career were spent in Washington, D.C., specializing in sales and marketing in the medical device industry. During her time in this space, she gained valuable experience that continues to inform her work and allows her to maximize each client's engagement in their therapy journey. In our conversation, Laura and I talk about her major career change and cross-country move, how to build community in professional spaces and fields, forming positive culture within our workspaces, and the profound impact of prioritizing authenticity with ourselves. Laura is definitely someone I look up to as a professional, but I am also lucky enough to be her niece, which means I have been learning from her and chatting with her for several decades now. She's one of my favorite people, and I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. All right, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. I'm really happy to be here with you. I am so happy to. I think this is going to be a good one. Um, So let's just jump right into it. Why don't we start with you telling our listeners about yourself, the work that you do right now, and the path that you took to get here? Okay. Boy, that's that's a lot to cover. I'll try to do it in the most concise way possible. So I currently live out in Denver, Colorado, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. So what that means is I'm trained to work with families, individuals, couples, partnerships of any kind to help people enhance their lives in important ways and also heal maybe from past hurts. As a licensed marriage and family therapist, I also work as part of a group practice and I'm the owner of the group practice. So there are, we're a team of 10. We have eight therapists that have already completed all of their training and most are licensed. Some are still working towards licensure. And this year we also introduced our internship program. So we have two interns right now who are doing their final year of school and doing actual clinical work with clients and they work under our supervision and our training. So I've been doing this, this work for about 10 years now, and it's been incredibly gratifying. But prior to that, I spent 22 years in the Washington DC area in an entirely different field. I was working in corporate America as a medical device salesperson. So I loved that work. I will say that I grew so much every single day working in hospitals and different medical facilities, representing the different medical devices that I was selling. I loved being in the medical world. I loved the relationships that I was building. And it really kept me captivated for about 15 of those 22 years. But at about year 15, the industry itself started to change a lot. And the emphasis on the relationship between the salesperson and the physician or the surgeon or the medical team was actually becoming less important. And 
corporate numbers, contracts, different ways of doing business started to take over. And that just was not fulfilling for me. And I, I spent some time with a lot of soul searching about why wasn't I gratified by that job anymore? As most people who are aware of sales or medical sales, they realize it's a lucrative field. And so I personally was gaining a lot of benefits from this industry, but my heart wasn't full anymore. And I started to really look at what was it from this job that gave me such satisfaction and could I obtain that somewhere else? And earlier in my life, I had gone through my own individual therapy after my dad had passed away. It was several years later. And it was through that therapy that I realized I had never fully grieved the loss of him. And it was impacting me in a lot of different ways. And so by going to therapy, I was able to understand so much more about myself and how I was relating to other people that I became just this advocate for therapy. And that was all just happening in my personal life while I was working in corporate America. So when I reached this point of my career where I was really trying to figure out what nourished my heart, I realized it's about having an impact on other people's lives. And as a medical device salesperson, when that relationship was important, I knew that if I worked hard to do my job well, the patient would have better service from the surgeon or the physician, the medical team I was representing. And so I could see where the impact of my effort and I could see the humanistic aspect of it. I was never fully motivated by just hitting my sales quota. It was about the actual work I was doing. And so I thought, where, where might I be able to achieve that somewhere else. And I reflected back on my own therapy experience. And I was like, wow, something in my heart just said, that's what I'm supposed to be doing for the second phase of my career. So at that point in time, I continued working in medical device sales, but I went to graduate school at night. And that took about five years to go through that whole process. And upon graduating, um, I was more clear than ever that I wanted to leave corporate America and spend my time helping families and individuals better understand themselves, their relationships, live happier lives. And I became a, I started to pursue becoming a licensed marriage and family therapist and left corporate America pretty much behind. Some things have come with me. <laughs> and left the East coast behind, right? I <laughs> Jumping did. across the country with the career move. I did, Casey, you're right. Um, that was also at a time in my life when I was personally not feeling quite as fulfilled living on the East Coast. I had loved, again, loved it up until a certain point until I didn't. And it had never occurred to me, well, you can move. You can move, Laura. And then I had this awareness of, wow, I can do that. I can just, I was in a time in my life where I was able to explore different parts of the country. And I had always loved Colorado. I'm just an outdoors girl. And I chose Denver. And so I did upon graduating in 2012. Um, I was in my mid forties at the time. So I, it was a, an interesting time to just pick up your life and move to another part of the country to start over. But I did it and settled in Denver and have just been incredibly happy here. So it was a life change and a career change all at the same time. So it was, it was quite a lot, but the right thing. Yeah. And You've, you've touched on this a little bit, but I, I think some people would hear about the transition from medical sales to therapy as a totally unrelated jump. And you've kind of shared how, how they do relate, but I'd just love to hear you speak more to how you use that previous career experience actively in your current role, especially with other therapists, because I know that you pull a lot from that experience 
to impact your current work? Yes, it's it's interesting the looks I get when someone asks what I did for a first career and I tell them sales and they're, they say to me, well, that's a big jump. And it's really not. I think in those cases, that person is typically not fully understanding what what true sales is. They think of someone trying to just push their product on someone. And I never viewed it that way. I always viewed it that my job was to get to know the customer and identify what their needs are. And then if my product was the product to suit their needs, then I would move forward. And if not, I would move on. But the bulk of the time was that assessment process, getting to know the clients and always comparing their needs to what I had to offer But I could only do that if I built a relationship, if I could really take myself and my own end game out of the picture and really embrace their perspective and what their needs were. So becoming a therapist, it's so similar in the fact that it's all about relationships. It's very much about taking my personal biases or my personal desires out of the equation and being able to be present in a way that really helps the client explore what their needs are, what their pains and hurts are. The one big difference is, as in sales, I did have a goal of finding someone who needed my product. Whereas as a therapist, I'm not tied to any outcome and it's not my goal. It's the client's goal. But having that 22 years of experience of maintaining a constant state of curiosity and openness and learning how to embrace other people's perceptions and perspectives was such a natural transition into being a therapist. I had a boatload of other things I needed to learn and how to use that information clinically, but that natural skill set, it had become very natural for me, that skill set. The other piece about how I work with therapists is owning a group practice. There's a lot of business really running and even a solo practitioner as a therapist We're in this field because we want to work with people. We don't want to be talking about numbers and business things. But what I am surprised, what I was surprised to see about myself was that my experience in corporate America and kind of that that business mindset has been a real asset in building my group practice because I know what it's like to work in corporate America. I know what is not fulfilling about that. And I know the areas that corporate America now is making great strides to improve. But back when I was there, it was really, really challenging. And so having that comparison and knowing I would like to run my practice in a different way to create a different environment for people to work has been incredibly helpful. And the therapists who come to work in a group like mine are very happy to not have to worry about those things. They can really focus on what they do best and which is working with clients. I would love for you to speak more to that because I, as the founder and owner of IRTC, you have had the freedom to create a company culture that's all your own, obviously with the (laughs) the input uh, Mm -hmm. of others, but I know you're really proud of it and I've experienced it and know that it's something special. So I just would love for you to speak to the culture you've created and why you continue to feel passionate about making an environment where therapists can thrive. Oh, I love this question. And I, you may have to interrupt me because I can gush about this sometimes (laughs) for a while. The first thing I want to say is that I can never take full credit for the culture of this practice. I feel so blessed to have had all the people who have contributed to it in the past as it was growing and all the people who are there now, because the culture is only as good as the people who are currently participating in the culture. 
And the IRTC therapists and employees are just just such wonderful people and always have been. I do often say, I really don't know how I got so lucky. <laughs> um, but I would describe our culture as one of very high integrity and authenticity. We really embody the same principles that, we, that drive us with our work with our clients and what we're trying to help them embrace or understand or gain awareness of. We embrace, we embody that every day here in the office. So there's just a, a great openness to um, the fact we're all learning. And with that comes an awareness that we're all going to make mistakes. And in order for that to be okay, we have to have grace and patience with one another. And something that we really embrace here that was not okay in my first career is that tears are okay. Being a therapist, if you're a good one, you are impacted by your clients and you're impacted by the work you're hearing that you're doing every day. And it's a lot to take on. And so to be able to shed some tears with one another, or even about your own work, we all go through periods of time where we doubt the quality of our work. And when you're driven to be of service to your clients, it feels really bad when you're doubting yourself. So being able to support each other at any moment in time has just been such a critical part of this. We also have a kind of this mentality of abundance and and celebrating successes. There's no inner competition or there's very little hierarchy. I work very, very hard to make sure that I am also embodying and representing to the team that I see myself as a constant learner. And I'm always very quick to own when I've made a mistake or when I'm unsure or when a decision I've made is not the right one. And I try to make that explicit with them so they can see me also when I'm struggling without putting ownership on them to take care of me, but just to know that I too am human. So the practice has just grown over time very organically with these qualities have just come about, I think, as a result of just the openness and, and, and humility. That's, that's probably one of the key things is we are a humble team and that just creates space for a lot of really good things to then happen and trust, emotional safety, so as I said, I could kind of go on about this for quite a while. Well, and it's a positive cycle because you promote these, I, these qualities and ideals, and then that betters the people who are there. And then, you know, in turn, they're better embodying those qualities. And then you're getting like, you, you draw in good people. You have good people at your practice because good people are drawn in by good ideals which sounds dumb when I say it that way, but it's the truth, right? Like it, <laughs> it is true. having a positive culture gets you the kind of people that you want to be working alongside and supporting and growing with, I think. I agree completely, Casey. And I think about that a lot when the applicants come across my desk and I take it very seriously when I'm interviewing people because I want to make sure that they know the culture we have. And through the interview process, I can kind of assess, is this what they're looking for too? Because we all know it doesn't take a whole lot to disrupt a culture like this. You know, the other piece I didn't share that I think is important because I think it's important in all fields is that we are all always open to feedback of all kind. And as a practice, we really try to balance giving that positive feedback with the constructive feedback, but everyone on the team needs to be open to it. So I, as the owner of the practice, I have to be open to constructive feedback from my team and I have received it and I take it very seriously. 
I seek my own consultation around it. And I try to model for the team how valuable that constructive feedback can be. So that way, when it's time for that person or for someone else on the team to receive some, they can see, oh, wait, this doesn't feel good, but there is something really good on the other side of it. And I think that has really contributed to this as well. Well, and that's just part of what it is to be a leader is being open to what others are sharing with you and then showing that, yeah, I can set my pride and ego aside and I can take this in and make it better for myself and therefore for everyone else. And then therefore the culture and everyone, as you've said, everybody contributes to the culture in the environment, in the workplace. It's not just you promoting this great culture and then everybody else experiencing it. It takes a team effort at all times, pretty much to be impacting a positive culture like that. Oh, it definitely does. It's, and this is also things I've just learned as I've gone along the way, but you can't just say, this is the kind of culture I want to have and tell someone that's what they need to do or how they need to show up. The positive culture comes from really embracing each person individually and supporting them, make sure they feel supported and heard and that they see modeled by other people the way we each show up in this community. So again, you referenced a circle earlier. It's just this you know, constant reinforcement as new people come in and as people have stayed, we have quite a few people who have been with us for years. And I know you work really hard to build that, build that bond between the members of the IRTC team, but you also do a lot of work in connecting therapists across the EFT community, therapists across Denver. And I'd love to hear you talk about the benefits of building and maintaining that community among peers in specifically the mental health field, but really beyond that too. Oh gosh. Yes. That's so important. You know, admittedly, when I initially started to create opportunities for therapists to connect with one another, it was a little bit selfishly motivated because I was new to this area and I didn't have community. And I noticed how lonely I felt trying to be a good therapist without a lot of community. I was new to Denver. I was new to being a therapist. And I knew I had the skills for my first career to build networking groups and and such. So it was was a very natural thing for me to do and a bit self-motivated. Through that process, though, and as I became far more networked and had a far more fulfilling personal and professional group of people in my life, I started to see other people feeling the same way and realizing gosh, we need to make sure people have access to community and that they know that these things are out there. And so over the years, I've created different groups for seasoned therapists to participate in community learning events. We had a group for a few years called Peers Teaching Peers, where I would bring in someone from the community who had an area of expertise. And for free, a therapist could come and listen to this colleague share their expertise, share something they were passionate about. And free trainings are not common. And so it was really fun. We actually did those pretty much up until COVID hit. And then we just haven't gotten back into it yet. Um, Our group is currently offering a free training for interns so that they can have exposure to emotionally focused therapy. So three of us who are certified in this model have been meeting on a monthly basis with interns. And so it's in part to give these young therapists exposure to this therapy model, but in, in a greater way, it's about connecting them 
connecting them to us. And then we are able to connect them to other people in different ways because it's an isolating field that we are in. And if we work in isolation, we are at greater risk of burnout. And so just feeling that we're a part of something bigger can really help with that. The other part that to me is critical. And as I really own my own development in this, this, my awareness of how critical this is has really only um, been increasing over the last five to six years. And that is, I have seen this world through my own life experience only. And as a white woman that I have a certain lens. And if I don't connect with the community on a broader sense then I am doing a great disservice to my team, to my clients, and to anyone I come in contact with in my life. And so by building community and and interacting with diverse population is critical. I need to hear other experiences. I want to hear other experiences. I want to know where I'm falling short, where my thoughts are limited. I want to know where my um, locations of power are and how I'm influenced by that. And if I work in isolation, I don't work in a bigger community and I don't push myself to engage in a broader community. I am working in a very narrow and living a very narrow frame life. And that perpetuates um, so many things in our world that need to change right now. And so I think in the mental health field, we need to do more of this branching out and also in, in any field and all the fields overlap. So you look at, I am a representation of integrating corporate America with the mental health field by building this practice. And there, there are ways that different fields overlap everywhere you look. So I'm not sure if that kind of answers your question, but because it's such a big, important subject. Yeah, absolutely. Well, even as you're saying that these fields overlap, this podcast is for prevention and wellness, but technically we're in the broadcasting realm just by doing this. And I so appreciate the ways, uh, the multifaceted benefits that you just shared, because building community really only ever offers a lot of positive ways to grow, I think. And I, I see building community within our, our fields and among our peers as so crucial because you might have loved ones, family, and friends that you can talk about your day with or what's going on, but that's so different than being able to share with someone who truly understands it um, or is living the same, a similar experience day to day, or, you know, especially like with HIPAA and privacy, if you can turn to a coworker and talk about something that you just legally can't talk about outside of the workplace, that's so crucial. We, we have to be able to share in that way because like you said, it's isolating and it's, um, it's heavy stuff that you're seeing in the mental health field. And if you're not finding ways to connect with others who are doing the same or similar things, I think it's, it can be really hard to process it all solo. I even wonder if it even is possible to process it all solo. I think of just how challenging that would be and how then by not processing it, what you're experiencing at work, how does that then come out at home? And how does that impact your ability to be emotionally accessible to the people that you love and to allow them to care for you or for you to care for them? Yeah, I agree. So if someone is listening and thinking, hmm, I would love to be building community in my field or connecting with others who are doing the work I'm doing, 
how would you encourage them? Like what, what would you offer as a, an idea for a starting point for someone? You know what, when I think about that, I, two thoughts come to mind. The first is just an overall attitude of abundance versus scarcity. Just seeing that the others in your field are not your competitors. They are your colleagues. They can be your allies and they can eventually possibly be a source of strength and resource for you. And so when you have that position of abundance, it's going to naturally come across in whatever steps you then take to try to build community, whether it's reaching out one-on-one if you are more comfortable in that environment, or if you're looking to build a group of some kind, when you just approach someone of, hey, we do similar things and this is a tough field. How about we form a group doing this? Or how about however you are most comfortable The other piece is really about, I just believe every one of us offers something unique and special. And I'm speaking specific to the mental health field now, um, but I think this applies to any field that I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on substance abuse. I'm not an expert on certain types of trauma. And there are people out there who are. And so I want to know them. And so I'm going to seek them out. However, if I'm the one who's looking to try to start the conversation, what is my superpower? What is the the thing that I do best with my clients or with my team that I can offer up as a resource to someone else? So when I first started my, my therapy career, I was coming out of this world of the medical field. And so I had this, this awareness of what medical family therapy is actually all about. And when clients in the therapy field are navigating medical conditions. And so I would just offer up to people that I met opportunities to talk about the medical field, medical family therapy, anything that I knew that they probably wouldn't have access to easily, but would probably help them with their clients. And I offered it up for free consultations, groups. And that was advice I got from a therapist. One of the first therapists I networked with, she said, if you have something special to offer, offer it for free to your colleagues. That is the easiest way to get to know them. They will not feel threatened by you again, because some come from that mindset of scarcity and it gives you an opportunity to shine. And so that's where I started. And it was something I hadn't ever thought of before as a superpower. And it ended up allowing me to build beautiful connections And then I just followed it and I just listened. And over time, I started to see different areas as my, my little niche that I could offer. And now it's, it's something very different, but being able to offer that up to other people and sharing it is probably what I would say. And getting creative with how we're doing that. Like, I think the pandemic has shown us that there are so many more ways to connect than we were thinking about Mm -hmm. before. I think of like somebody who wants to start a group for you know, say practice owners in their area before it's like, well, can everyone really get away at the same time at lunch on a Tuesday? Like, can they take that much time away from the practice? But yeah, they can all hop onto a hour long zoom call because they don't Mm -hmm. have to travel for it. And that's huge. And I think hopefully we'll all be finding ways to continue accessing that as we return to more in-person things. I agree so much, Casey. There were so many trainings I couldn't participate in before because I couldn't have that much time away from seeing clients with travel and the expense of travel. And I just feel I'm a better therapist for it, being able to access it that way. Yeah. And I'm, this question is making me think about the other day I heard about a book that I, I feel will be helpful for my 
work that I do and I am interested in reading it. And then just now I'm like, well, why don't I ask my coworkers if they want to do a book club? Yeah. <laughs> like, why don't I invite them all to read it? And then we can connect on something that's related to our work, but not our day-to-day in office. Like it really doesn't have to be big to be building community among our peers. Yes. So true, Casey. And you know, as something else that just came to mind for me, if anyone is out there wondering that question of, well, is, is what is of interest to me, would it be of interest to someone else? You know, I think that sometimes holds us back from stepping out there. And just a quick story about what I now see as something I really have of, can offer to my colleagues is um, having a business background in corporate America. Those 22 years taught me the importance of engaging back then with my customers on all levels and always assessing how engaged are they with me as a salesperson? Am I really the salesperson they think of when they need something? Um, And there's all different ways of assessing that in the sales world. And in the therapy world, we're often taught, well, actually, we're not really taught much about this at all, but that the only gauge we've been given if our work is good with our clients is whether the client keeps coming and if we see them making progress. And there are so many variables that contribute to a client having a good experience. And many of them are not what we would call clinical, meaning when you're sitting in the room doing therapy. They have to do with navigating boundaries, navigating financial conversations about um, policies around cancellations, or the therapist having the clinical leadership to say, I know you say you want to come to therapy once a month but really to heal the way you're interested in healing, I really need to see you more frequently. And to have confidence around making those clinical recommendations, those can be really difficult for therapists. And I brought into this field of therapy an awareness of the value of things like this. I saw quickly the positive impact that this engagement lens can have on the client's experience, but I doubted for a long time whether anyone else would see it the same way or if anyone else would see it as valuable. And the more networked I became and people started to know me, they started to pick up on some of this and started to ask me questions. Then they would joke, you should do a workshop. You should put together a chapter for a book. And I kept saying, I don't know, this is just my lived experience. I continued to doubt if I had that to offer. And finally, just before the pandemic hit, I got up the courage to say, you know what? I think this is a value to other therapists. And I put together a workshop. It was a one hour workshop, the first one. And I was amazed by how all the therapists who attained really absorbed it. And I got more and more confident in the fact this is something of value to people. So I've since done this workshop many, many times for webinars across the country for all different groups, EFT groups, as well as non-EFT groups. And the gratitude from the therapists of like, finally, someone's talking about this stuff. I just am so glad I didn't continue to doubt myself. So the message is, if it feels important to you, it's probably important to someone else and don't doubt it, embrace it just, and, and try to boost yourself to share it because someone else is going to be grateful that you do. And, you know, for people who are, who really love their work and want to continue growing, they're going to be interested in whatever experiences are different from their own that they can possibly take from. And I think sometimes just like you said, it's easy to think, well, I don't have anything to offer. My story is not that unique, but you know, if you're in a field where people are wanting to grow and be curious, then yeah, there are probably going to be a lot of people who do find great value in whatever your story is, you know? Yes. 
So I want to pivot a little bit. Um, Anybody who's listened to more than one episode of this show knows how much I love talking about the ways that we interact with our communities and our surroundings. So I can't resist asking uh, an EFT therapist how our relationships with ourselves, our partners, our families, our friends, how do those impact the broader community? And why does paying attention to those relationships with others and again with ourselves matter? Gosh, that's such a great question, Casey. Oh, I'll start from the first part of your question, or I guess, I guess I'll start really from what to me feels like the inside out. I feel that our relationship with ourselves, and, and some listeners may not really understand even what we mean by that, because I don't think I understood that until I became a therapist, but there are a lot of us who walk around not liking parts of ourselves. And as a therapist, what I have learned is, and just even in my own life, that that's a relationship with ourselves. And if we don't like parts of ourselves, that doesn't feel very good. And over time, what we can learn is that the parts we don't like are just the parts we don't understand. And every part is beautiful, even if we don't like how something feels, how a part of us feels. And we are who we are. We begin forming our ability to have relationships and how we have relationships from the time we come out of the womb. Babies come out of the womb crying when they're cold, crying when they're hungry, and someone does or doesn't respond to them. And as they continue to go through life, as those needs are or are not responded to them kind of forms their view of the world. And if they're worthy of being responded to, and they're also seeing people model for them, how do you or don't you respond to someone when they express a need? Babies aren't shy, they just do it. But we learn how to suppress or how to hold some things back, maybe even tell ourselves emotions don't really matter. But all of these lived experiences contribute to how we see ourselves But most people on this earth haven't spent time really slowing down and getting to know all those inner parts because life is busy, expectations, all of the things that keep us from doing that. But I really believe the more we really know ourselves, then that fully impacts how we show up in our closest relationships. So that's the next level out. So whether it's a partner or if we're a parent or it's a friend, a sibling, how we see ourselves completely influences how we show up with others. And so oftentimes there may be behaviors that don't make sense if we don't understand ourselves, or the people in our lives don't have that understanding of themselves. And very often, well, we are very adaptable creatures. So we adapt to make things work. And that's beautiful too. We need those adaptive traits as well. Um, but that initial relationship with ourselves informs that next layer with our most, our closest people, and then how those people respond to us or how we respond to them has a greater impact on the next level out, the broader, the next level of our community. And so the healthier we are with our closest relationships, then the more brave we can be in going out and trying to impact the world or enduring what the world is presenting to us. Um, The safer we feel, the more resourced we feel, the more positive we can do. And then the opposite happens too. And when we are, you know, the world is a cruel place in many, many ways. And so if we don't have safety at home or we don't feel safe within ourselves, then that will, con- that will have, continue to have just a, um, I don't want to use the word negative, but it will make our relationships or our encounters more challenging, more trauma. So I think it's impossible to kind of separate it out because we are all interconnected. I, I don't 
live on this earth in isolation. I don't exist in isolation. Everything I do and feel and think is in response to something I have done, someone I've experienced, what's happening around me. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. That's a beautiful way of, of looking at that. Um, and something I wanted to ask, or I was thinking about earlier that I think relates to this because you're talking about, you know, listening to our needs and understanding ourselves. You made a jump career-wise, living environment-wise, that was huge. And I imagine scary at times and probably a whole host of other things, but those were those were big moves that helped you to feel like a more authentic version of yourself. You were doing work and making a move that felt authentic. So I'm just, for anyone listening to this who wants advice from someone who did it, what would you say to somebody who's maybe wanting to make a move that feels more authentic to them or is feeling like they're not necessarily doing the work that feels most fulfilling and that they, they maybe do know what could feel more fulfilling, but it's scary or feels impossible. The first thing that comes to mind is to allow yourself to lean into the process and to explore whatever it is that's telling you something else may feel more authentic or something where you are right now is not authentic and get curious about it. Don't dismiss it. When people ask me what's the favorite part of having made this change in my life, my answer is always the same. And that is the fact I didn't talk myself out of it. I met a lot of resistance, people questioning. I was leaving a lucrative sales career to go into a, a field that people will say is you know, not lucrative. It's, we don't go into it for the money. Um, I had achieved a lot. And I also was living in a part of the country where I was surrounded by amazing people that I loved. But something inside of me just said that that wasn't where I was meant to grow my, in my next phase of my life. And I just got curious about it. I went back to my therapist and I really explored all the things that might've been contributing to it. And I just trusted that clarity would come. I didn't know for sure clarity would be that I would move or that I would continue to change careers. I always left space for the option to be to stay and to remain in sales. And I think taking that pressure off myself allowed me to get a little less scared and a little more brave. And so I, I was surrounded also by very supportive people, but also a lot of questions. Are you sure you want to do it? That's crazy. Nobody ups and moves across the country. Um, but I just didn't let anyone talk me out of it. I just kept, kept considering it and just listening. It was this gut feeling. I remember saying to my very best friend, Jane, um, as I was preparing to move, I said, I don't want to want to go to Colorado, but this feeling, this desire to go is so strong. And I wish I didn't have that, but I do. And I have to listen to it. And it was scary. And I was saying this through tears, but it was so authentic. I, at that point, had worked through a lot of the cloudiness of it all. Still had no idea. I always said, well, I could always come back. Can always come back. But at least I was going to try and I was going to listen. And that feeling of authenticity has remained the entire 10 years I've been here. It's the same for all of this. It's being curious about yourself, being willing to listen. It's knowing yourself uh, well enough to be able to engage in meaningful relationships. It's trusting in what you bring to the table and being able to invest in your professional community. I mean, it's all, it's not selfish, <laughs> even though I was about to say it's all self-driven, but it's, <laughs> it's really how we know ourselves, how we trust ourselves, how we're curious with ourselves 
as you said before, impacts us at every level and our community at every level. Yeah. I love that Casey, the way you've kind of tied it together. Cause I often don't, I live that thread, but I don't often think about that thread like that. And it's, it yeah. is very true. I'm going to be thinking about that <laughs> long <laughs> after we, <laughs> after we part on here. Well, I will, I will close this out here by asking you the question we ask all of our guests, which is what does the process of awareness to action mean to you? I knew you'd be asking this question because I've listened to your podcasts, which I love by the way. And I guess what resonates with me the most about the process of awareness to action um, is really about, I guess, awareness from two perspectives. The first is um, how important having awareness is and being open to awareness. And again, the curiosity piece of just being open to me, that's being open to learn, being open to different perspectives, taking in an, of information, not living with my own narrow focus and my own goals and objectives, but because I don't know how you can gain new awareness of things if you're too narrowly focused. The more powerful piece is probably that once you have awareness of something, you can't not be aware of it anymore. And there are so many important things happening in our world right now um, that we as therapists in particular are navigating with our clients. Um, that you, it would be a disservice. It's a disservice to our community to not then take action on the things we become aware of. And so I don't, I feel if you have an awareness to turn your head down and not take action is not just shortchanging others around you, but yourself too. So by allowing yourself to get curious when you have awareness of how can you take action? What is the right action for you now that you have this awareness of this, this problem or this situation or this opportunity. So it could be about having awareness to share your gifts, or it could be awareness of something that is unfair happening around you. And are you leaning into discomfort so that you can take action in the most important ways, taking action isn't comfortable in order to really impact change in positive ways. We have to be able to be uncomfortable. And if we have awareness and we don't take action, we're probably seeking comfort. And so for my, my, my own self and the way I see my place in this world is increasing my, my capacity for discomfort so that I can continue to try to take action in ways that are important because I am very, very lucky to have exposure to some ways um, to, to, to have awareness of some ways that therapists can really help people and what, what our people really need right now. So that's kind of a, kind of a broad answer to a really important question. <laughs> it's a good one. I, I appreciate that. And I think it's always helpful to have a reminder that action, I mean, engaging in our communities and taking action in ways that are meaningful is one of the most beautiful things a person can do, but it's a mess. I mean, it's messy and it is uncomfortable. And there's a lot of growing edges in it. I think that's a a phrase I learned from you growing edges. It's, it's, it's just, it's good. And it's a mess. And I appreciate that reminder. Yeah. I have really learned. And I think I have said this to you before too, about how, um, imperfection is perfection, right? That just embracing imperfection and, um, leaning into discomfort, leaning into difficult conversations. Um, we've been raised in a society where trying to keep each other comfortable is, is what we're supposed to do. And that's not the right thing. 
and we're in a position to be able to model for other people that our, our willingness to lean into discomfort and to open ourselves up for feedback and to do things differently is how we're, that's the best action we can take. Um, and it, once you're leaning into it and you see the good that can come from it, it's, it, um, it's hard to not do it. It's hard to not look for it. And I wish for more of us to continue to do that. Lean into discomfort, trust that you have something to offer. You can take action. Um, and without leaning into the discomfort, we can't take the action we need. That is really beautiful, Laura. I, I am just really grateful for that perspective. And I'm probably going to listen back to this and write it down. <laughs> oh, thank you, Casey. <laughs> um, I'm just so grateful that you were here today to share um, what I think and continue to find to be a, a really inspiring story of um, staying true to yourself and doing good in the world in a way that impacts others and just feels really authentic. So thanks for being here. For sharing your story. So fun to have family on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Casey, it is such a joy to be here. Thank you so much. I, I love what you're doing with this podcast and I just feel really honored to have been a guest today. So thank you so much. Thank you again to Laura for joining us. Her practice information is linked in the episode description. If you enjoyed this conversation, send it to a friend. And make sure you subscribe to Awareness to Action to catch all the great conversations we have coming up in the rest of Season 2.